This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right. Well, you got to love it when it all comes together from an organizational perspective. We've got a vast journalistic enterprise here at Bloomberg. And this week on newsstands is Bloomberg Business Week's equality issue. And here we are at the Equality Summit. Joel Weber. It's almost like we planned that. It's almost like we planned it. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, here with me in New York City. And Jillian Goodman, really the architect of a lot of this coverage. Joining us from D.C., she oversees a lot of our political coverage as well. So, Jillian, let me start with you because it's a tough, it's a tough topic to take on, especially in its scope. Right? I, I mean, I just outsource my job yeah. and say, "Hey, Jillian, can you do the quality <laughs> issue for us? Please handle this." Yeah. Uh, so, how'd, how'd you go about this? Set the stage. Yeah, well, so this is the second time we've done it. And so we did have a little bit of the benefit of looking at last year's and saying, okay, what did we like about that? What didn't we like about that? And, you know, last year we were coming out, you know, just as the Me Too movement was heating up. And so it really felt like, okay, we'll look at the workplace specifically, like what goes on in offices. And so this year I wanted to take a little bit of a step back and say like, okay, let's let's look at some of the factors that would keep someone from getting into that office in the first place. And so, you know, we're talking about economic mobility. We're talking talking about, you know, access to education. We're talking about, um, you know, just a lot of factors that go into determining someone's, you know, earning power in the future. And and I even want to go a little bit even more meta than that, Jillian, which is why, why do this at all? <laughs> I mean, you know, it is, it, it's, you know, I just laughed, but it's not that funny of a question because, you know, this is obviously something that we talk about in all kinds of different ways and all kinds of different scenarios. And so it does, you know, when you say like, OK, let's do an issue about equality, let's let's put a, a bunch of stories about equality all in the same issue. It is, you know, a really big challenge. But I think that, you know, especially given that we're sitting here thinking about the business community and the business world all day, every day, it really, really bears considering, you know, every once in a while to just take a step back and say, like, OK, who gets to be here and yep. and, and look about why they get to be there and I, not just, you know, we like to pretend that or we would like to believe that it's a meritocracy all the time. But it's it's much more complicated. than that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I can kind of answer my own question there, which is I actually think it's the most important topic in business right now. And if we don't talk about it, then we're doing this massive disservice to the business community as well as the people who are not included in the conversation. Right. Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things that Jillian was really able to do with this package of stories is think about these little corners of the world that are underrepresented. And, you know, I thought the the package and portfolio that you did around um, trans was especially poignant in that way. Can you talk about that for a second? Absolutely. Yeah. So we spoke to, uh, you know, I think there are six people in our print magazine and, and nine people in our online presentation, uh, you know, people who who are trans about their experiences in the workplace. And, you know, they talked about everything from, you know, some people who were sort of coming to this realization about themselves, you know, who'd grown up in the 60s and 70s. And it was remarkable to me the number of people who just said, like, I didn't have the language to describe what I was feeling. And so, you know, it takes a while to get up to that point. And then once you do, you know, we had one one woman who described coming out to her in her workplace and she when she was going to get facial surgery. And she said, you can't. You know, you, there's no going back from that. Like, people are right. going to ask questions. You cannot, you know, pretend this isn't happening. Um, it's one so our, powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, that was, um, yeah. sorry, that was reported by uh, Riley Griffin, whose name I really want to make sure is in this conversation because she's wonderful. Um, Josh Idelson also wrote about a woman named Amy Stevens, whose case um, the Supreme Court, I believe, hasn't decided yet whether or not it's going to take up, but who was fired from her job at a funeral home yeah. um, when she came out as trans. Super, super timely. Yeah. yeah. And that, um, you know, has the power to reshape potentially uh, the way we consider. Uh, another one that's speaking 
of speaking of time, <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're both that. going. The can, same I, place. can I steal that transition from you? <laughs> yeah, because, exactly. uh, we got to talk about Lloyd's. We got to talk about Lloyd's. I mean, it was a powerful story to begin with. You know, looking at Lloyd's of London, taking us inside. You know, what you guys rightly describe is a boozy culture. Talk to us about the impact that that story has had because. I saw my Twitter feed this morning. You've got an MP who's already getting in touch with the company and saying, I'm going to come visit. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. I mean, we uh, had the CEO on uh, Bloomberg TV yesterday who described, uh, you know, considering a no a zero tolerance policy for sexual harassment. And, you know, we they convened a group of insurance executives to discover uh, to discuss this policy on Monday. So, you know, I'm, you know, kind of floored at the impact the story has had. I mean, I, I to me, that's the most impressive thing about the story. It's like we put a spotlight on something that um, no one knew about. This is a company that's been around for, for hundreds of years, um, and yet there's this toxic culture that continues to seem to permeate. And this is... It was happening right out in the open. Right I mean, this the was... A, the, this and, was and it speaks to the difference sight. between your what's happened in Europe versus what's happened in the U.S. And you can almost start to see how what's happened here it, it can actually cross the pond and actually maybe affect change. And to have it happen within a week, like yeah. a new CEO who's only been there for a couple months, uh, and he has to go on an offensive here to say, like, this culture will not stand. Right. I'm on it. Yeah. All right. So, Jillian, about 30 seconds left. Uh, I know it's trying to pick them up. I have all one your for favorites. her. All right, go. Which is the... <laughs> I think the ultimate challenge here is how do you not include something, right? So, Jillian, how do you think about this for next year? What are we going to include that we haven't included for, for this one? Oh, my gosh. I think I need to take a few more naps before I can answer <laughs> that question. <laughs> but, you know, it's That's such a – there are plenty of – I'm sure there will be plenty of stories to choose from. Well, I will say, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, the news cycle has come to all of us, and I feel like we're going to be watching – this college admission scandal because that has laid bare a whole level of inequality that Which is I why think you can read about uh, Rebecca Cantor who's got yeah. a potential fix for it in the issue too exactly so a lot to come uh, congratulations on a great issue to both of you manifesting itself live here uh, in New York City today at the Bloomberg Equality Summit you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week that was Joel Weber and Jillian Goodman All I'm Jillian. Jason Kelly Thank you, Jillian. here <laughs> in New York this is Bloomberg Radio she said you don't understand what I said. I said no, no, All right, so we're going to give you a little bit of a sneak peek of this week's Bloomberg Business Week magazine. There's a new section. It's called Strategies, and this week it features Joanne Lippman. She's the former editor-in-chief of USA Today. She's also author of the book, That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. She joins us on the phone from New York City. Joanne, great to talk to you. Likewise. Thanks for having me, Jason. I'm a longtime admirer of your work. You've been uh, in many, many influential positions across the world of journalism. And I wonder, as you've gone through those jobs, you've really been quite an innovator in journalism. You've talked to a lot of CEOs. You've led organizations. What's the one big thing that people need to know about your book? So the reason I wrote That's What She Said is because exactly as you said, I've been rising up through these leadership positions, and as I've um, you know, spent these, this time in journalism and I get invited to these leadership summits of women, and you hear women at every one of these organizations talking to one another about the issues we face at work. And I'm not just talking about the, the Me Too issues of sexual abuse, but the the everyday uh, challenges that women face of being marginalized and overlooked, ignored, uh, interrupted, and simply not taken as seriously as the guy sitting right next to them. And uh, I grew frustrated, I have to tell you, about women talking to each other. And I said, you know what? Women talking to each other, it's half a conversation. Right. And it gets us to half a solution. We need men to join us. And that's why I wrote, that's what she said. It's really about getting men into that conversation. And, and by the way, I have to tell you, in my career, which started at the Wall Street Journal, all of my mentors were men, and most of my colleagues were also men. So I know there's a lot of great guys out there who do want to be part of the solution in closing the gender gap. What, and it's such a good point, and I feel like more and more we are, you know, hearing more about allies and, you know, how men can be involved in this 
and I will say, and I say this as a man, you know, some men enter into this with a little bit of trepidation. They sort of feel like they've got to be careful about what they say or, or don't say. What do you say when, when people express that concern? Yeah, so there's, there's two types of what you're talking about, right? There's two levels. One is the guys who say, oh, I'm never going to mentor a woman again. Right. I'm never going to hire a woman. And to those Which is guys, super I, lame. Let's just say, let's, let's totally agree. That's lame. lame. No patience for that whatsoever. These are guys who are not mentoring women in the first place. Right. However, for the I'm for not going to do the thing that I'm not doing already. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But for the men who, for the the majority of men, really, who are saying, "Okay, the, have the rules changed? What do I do?" There's never been a better time than now to talk about the issues, to raise the issues of um, gender equality, and to become an ally. And there's some really simple ways that you can be an ally, and a lot of it comes down to awareness. Um, there's so many issues that we see that women experience. For example, the research shows that women are interrupted three times more frequently than men are. Even the Supreme Court justices, female Supreme Court justices, are interrupted three times more frequently than male justices. Amazing. So one of the recommendations I give is simply listen for that. Interrupt the interrupters, right? If you hear a woman being interrupted, listen to that and then say, hey, Chloe was speaking. I would love to hear her finish her, you know, her, her point. Um, you know, similarly, there's uh, something that actually does happen. This is where the title of the book comes from, um, where when women make up less than a third of a group, their voices are literally not heard, which is why so many women have that experience where they say something, particularly in a meeting, and nobody seems to hear it. And then Two minutes later, a guy repeats exactly what they just said, and everybody turns to him. And they're like, hey, Dave, great yeah, idea. Great idea, Dave. Dave. <laughs> right, and Dave gets the credit. Um, we need to listen for that as well and make sure that the woman gets that credit. So you can do that in a couple of ways. One is simply amplifying her voice, which is when a woman has an idea, someone else, an ally, could be a man, could be a woman, repeats her point and gives her credit by name, thus amplifying her point. Um, and then there's the other issue, which is simply of just giving her credit, just making sure that the bosses know that this right. idea originated with her. Well, and I love that idea of, of essentially sort of like having a having a compliment buddy, which I think you talk about, which is like, I've yeah. got your back to sort of make sure that the boss knows that you did a good job and you're going to do the same thing uh, for me. A lot of lessons for all of us in that. Yeah, absolutely. And the women in a consulting firm actually were the ones who told me about this, that concept. They call it brag buddies. Brag buddy. I love it. Brag buddies. I'll be your brag buddy, right? So that means you tell me your awesome achievements and I tell you mine and then we each go to the boss and brag about the other one. Well, it's an excellent, excellent book, and we're so excited to have you join us. And uh, for more from Joanne Lippman, check out this upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Her book is That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. Earlier this morning on Bloomberg Television, I got a chance to catch up with Bill Ford. He is the CEO of General Atlantic, one of the biggest and best-known growth equity funds. They sit right between venture capital and private equity. They've got a bunch of really interesting companies in their portfolio, Uber, Airbnb, Slack, uh, Torchy's Tacos, for those of you listening in Texas and in the West. We had a wide-ranging conversation. Take a listen. IPOs on the deck for Lyft, potentially Uber, Slack, that's another name you're involved in. Others may come out. What's the market going to be like for them? Hotly anticipated. Yeah, I would say two things. I think 2019 is uh, setting up to be the most exciting IPO year since 2012 for a couple of reasons. You've got some wonderful companies, uh, one Uber, Lyft, and maybe down the road Airbnb are going to introduce investors to the sharing economy and the very, very large rideshare market. And then on the enterprise software space, you've got Palantir, CrowdStrike, Slack, all highly anticipated next generation software companies. You got to go all the way back, I think, to 2012 when Facebook went public and and introduced investors to uh, the social media space. And also, we had that great crop of cloud software companies, Workday, ServiceNow, Palo Alto Networks. So it's, it's setting up to be a great year. The other thing about the IPO market that we've observed over the years is that um, when you have a very constructive equity market like we've had over the last several months, combined with uh, you know moderate volatility, a VIX of 15, 
the market's not too hot, not too cold, yeah. really creates the best conditions for a good IPO market, and we have them now. We've seen the Levi Strauss deal work. I think Lyft will be successful, and I think it sets up a nice conditions for the balance of the year. All right, nice conditions to exit. What about getting into deals? How much do you worry about valuations in this sort of Goldilocks market? Well, private market values are up. There's no, there's no doubt about that, and it makes our job more challenging. But you've always had to pay full prices for great growth companies. That's not any different today than it's been in the past. The key for us is actually discerning companies that really can emerge as market leaders and secondarily are serving very, very large markets. And when you get that right, history tells us you can get your investment returns even if you're paying a full valuation. Where you get into trouble is if companies that really at the end of the day are serving relatively small markets relative to the enterprise value you're being asked to pay. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the firm. As we said, it goes all the way back to 1980, sort of came out of a family office type uh, situation. Duty-free, actually, is underneath all of this, uh, right? A, a fortune there. Yeah, we have, a, we have a wonderful history that I feel very fortunate to be part of. Uh, we were founded in 1980 by a man named Chuck Feeney, who was the founder of the duty-free shopper business out of Cornell, and actually built that into a very successful company, and we were really formed to manage his capital. Yeah. And between 1980 and 1990... We were a family office, and he was our sole source of capital. Uh, around 1990, uh, Chuck, who really is the father of the Giving Pledge, gave all of his wealth to Atlantic Philanthropies, who's a, a really a special man, has given away almost $9 billion to causes around the world, include, including here, the Cornell Technion campus, yeah. and out in San Francisco, the Mission Bay campus for University of San Francisco. All right, we're going to get to some of your philanthropy in just a minute with uh, talking some hoops. But before we get to that, you're also involved in the partnership for New York City, a very active voice. You're co-heading it with uh, Ajay. Banga, I believe yes. uh, you guys have been very involved, especially on the back end of that decision by Amazon not to come to New York City. Where do we stand on that? Is that still live? Well, Ajay and I, and, and with, with Kathy Wilde, who heads the partnership, have really tried to basically turn around Amazon's decision. We've stayed engaged with both the local community, our local politicians, our governor, as well as with Amazon, to see if we can turn this around. Uh, we're worried this sends a negative signal to business globally about doing business here in New York. And it's, it's, uh, New York had had great momentum uh, in the tech space. If you think about it, you know, Facebook has a campus here. Google has a campus here. We have our share of, of leading companies in for Squarespace, MongoDB, and Etsy are, are unicorn IPOs. So the space had momentum, and I think adding Amazon would have only distinguished uh, in New York as a leader in technology. Also, media. Given Amazon's move into media, uh, you know, New York is obviously a great media hub. It would have been another you know, a catalyst for further development there. So we hope we can turn it around. Yeah. And if we, if we aren't able to, we still want to send a really strong signal to the global business community that New York wants them to, to operate here and wants them to build their business here. Do you feel like it's working so far? Are they listening to you? How engaged? Well, we're, 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 we know we have to elevate our voice. And we, we've, we have a great group of people who are part of the partnership. And we've come together and said we need to be more active and more vocal. And we need to engage our employees. Because actually, when we did, it, we did a survey in New York, and 70% of New Yorkers said they wanted Amazon to be here. And we we, we, we just aren't activating that voice loudly enough, so right. that's something we need to do. All right. Got to talk some hoops. Brackets for a cause. You've been involved for the past years. You're a past winner. You and Tillman Fertitta split the prize a couple years ago. You're in fifth place right now in some good company. Back in the day, I believe you rode UNC all the way. This year, you've got Duke. Uh, a lot of people have Duke. How are you feeling? I feel great about Duke winning the whole thing. First of all, it's one of my favorite times of year. Brackets for a cause at Bloomberg is is just terrific. It's now, what, 54 contestants yeah. this year, and, and it's, a, it's a great field. Congratulations to Dwight Anderson for getting 16 of the Sweet 16. Uh, hard to believe that I, we got our team got 15 out of 16 right, and we're hanging on to fifth place. So yeah. this is a super competitive field this year. Uh, you know, we, we just think it's, uh, you know, Coach K combined with probably the best uh, college basketball player in Zion Williamson is, is hard to go against, and we think they've got a good chance to win. And importantly, Shining Hope for Communities, that's your charity again. Tell us about what that is. Yeah, Shining Hope is a terrific social service organization 
organization that uh, runs girls' schools in some of the largest slums in the world, which are in Nairobi, Kenya. And they've had an amazing impact. Uh, in fact, they sent their first crop of, of graduates to college last year. So it's a wonderful organization. Uh, that's where the proceeds went two years ago. And uh, hopefully we can, uh, we can get some money to them again this year with a, a come-from-behind victory. So a group effort to get this bracket together? You've got a good team working we've on this? Got, we've got four, four terrific associates in General Atlantic. Each took one of the regions, and uh, we used a private equity decision-making style. Lots of conference calls, lots of debate when we got to, our, to get to our bracket. All right, that was Bill Ford. He's the chief executive officer of General Atlantic, well-known growth equity fund. But as you heard there at the end, what he's really focused on right now, what I was very focused on with him, is talking about Brackets for a Cause. That's our annual charity brackets competition here at Bloomberg. We got 54 participants, including Bill Ford, uh, going at it. And we'll get into the Sweet 16 just in a couple days tomorrow, uh, actually. And uh, Bill Ford's sitting in Fifth place, looking pretty good. He and a number of others have Duke uh, going all the way. The current leader is Dwight Anderson over at Osprey Management. He's got North Carolina going all the way. He's He managed to put together with his team a perfect Sweet 16. So he's looking pretty, pretty good. Gary Cohn, former uh, national economic advisor to President Trump, he's in the mix there at the top. And Chin Chu uh, has his own firm now, CC Capital, uh, used to work over at Blackstone. He's right up there as well. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We're here live at Bloomberg headquarters. And our next guest is participating in a panel uh, here at the uh, Bloomberg Equality Summit uh, later on today. It's entitled Why Representation Matters. Will Packer is film director, film director and producer, founder of Will Packer Productions. He's on site with us here at uh, the Equality Summit. Lives mostly in Atlanta. Can we just mo- that? <laughs> We've been talking to him about it and all the entertainment stuff that's going on. Um, Will, Welcome. Hey, hey, thanks for having me, guys. How are you? So nice. I'm doing well. Yeah. Um, nice to have you here with little us. little Atlanta shout out there. Nice. <laughs> I love it. Come on. Yes, the Make best. It. So, you know, it's interesting. I just came off of, uh, of a lunch here at the Equality Summit with CEOs, and we were talking about the importance of diversity. And one of the things that came up is they said the way women and um, African Americans and minorities and LGBTQ, LGBT community is represented yeah. in either yeah. media or in the entertainment world. That it's got to get better. Yeah. But you know what? It's, it's ultimately an economic decision. That's the thing that I, I say to people all the time. You know, Hollywood's a business. I am a filmmaker. I'm a producer. I am a businessman. And so what happens is that you are seeing, and I am an example of it, you are seeing projects that um, are more inclusionary, that have more diverse voices, that have multiple entry points for audiences, that look more like the global community. They're making more money than ever before. And so it feels like uh, if you have content that is not... Uh, representative of the world, it starts to feel dated. It starts to feel like um, something that's not as hip and as edgy and as, as, as provocative and as of the moment. And that's what audiences are gravitating to. So I tell people all the time, it's just good business. Right. It's good business to make sure that you've got content that feels like the world we live in. Listen, I think we have some examples for the past few years that you have worked on to point to Girls Trip being, yeah. I think, a great example of that. Yeah. I mean, that I think we'll look back and, and see that film, among a few others over the last couple of years, whether it's Get Out, whether it's Black Panther, right. that really sort of opened people's eyes to, as you say, look, listen, economically, this makes sense. Makes you want to get to an audience? You want to make some money? Here you go. There you go. You make it for a particular number. You you, you aim at an audience, which is what we all do as, as uh, filmmakers and content creators. And then you expand beyond that core audience, right? And so, so why do you think that particular movie resonated the way that it did? Girls Trip? Or, you know what? Because it was, uh, it was an inclusionary story. It was a universal theme. It didn't feel exclusive. You didn't feel like, okay, I'm not in on the joke if I don't necessarily look like the actors in it, right? It was about, you know, four women behaving badly, having fun on Bourbon Street. Who hasn't done that, right? Yeah. I don't care <laughs> what you look like, you know. If, if Everybody's smiling. It, like, I don't know why he just looked over to our producer, Paul Brennan, but he did. So listen, I can tell that you value the platform that 
that you have. Of There's course. something that just debuted on Discovery, and this is about um, the Atlanta child um, murders. Yeah. Tell me about that because, you know, you brought attention to something that didn't get a lot of attention initially. Yeah. You know what? It's interesting because um, I have made – I've had a lot of successful comedies. Um, I've uh, executive produced straight out of Compton and, mm-hmm. uh, and some thrillers and nothing with this level of seriousness and this, and this, this gravity. But I have a responsibility to tell stories and choose which stories I tell. And I said, I've got to tell this story because so many people don't know it, right? Some people do, but by and large, it's not something that um, is looked at as one of the great American tragedies, which it really was. You had these you know, 23 kids who were murdered in Atlanta over the course of a two-year period, mm-hmm. um, and nobody has been tried for their murders. Uh, a person who was uh, tried was tried for other murders of mm-hmm. two adults that happened around that time, and then they closed all the cases. And a lot of people think it was for a matter of convenience. So anyway, when I had the opportunity to be a part of this, um, I said, yeah, absolutely. This is what I should be doing right. is bringing a platform to something like this. And it premiered on uh, Investigation Discovery this past weekend to very, very huge numbers. I'm very happy. But it speaks to a larger point, right, that people who have platforms, whether you're a CEO, whether you're a president, whether you're a senator, whether you're a producer in right. the entertainment industry, you do have a responsibility no to question. kind of push the conversation, get the real conversations out there. I certainly think think so. I mean, you know, listen, at the end of the day, we all operate under this economic imperative, and that's something that you cannot forget. But there is a... this is this is a uh, this is a responsibility, right? This is a privilege mm-hmm. to do what we do and to be working in media and to be you know controlling what people consume. And so you just have to be responsible about that and the narratives that you choose to push to the front. All right, thirty seconds. Give us a little. Uh, <laughs> let's let's finish where we start with a, a shout out to the ATL. ATL, because, like, yes. So much happening down there. <laughs> oh, Why? Man. Why you is know, it just Atlanta has become? Like I mean, you know, we call it on location filming. It's the number one on location filming market uh, in the country right now, which you know, it, like excludes like stages and all that. But you know what? Because we've got a great tax incentive down there, and um, it is a, pr- a place where if you look at a like almost every third movie that is released or television show is shot in Atlanta. Yeah. It's a great environment. You know that, Jason. I know, you were there. Amazing. My it's next amazing. movie is, is was shot there. It's called Little. It's dropping on April 12th. April 12th. Yeah. Wow. Check that out. Yeah. Yeah. that in. And you've got like 18 this seconds to go. This guy knows what go. he's doing. Yeah, well. Yeah. Damn. This is not his first rodeo. <laughs> Holy moly. Thanks for having me, guys. Right. This is an important conversation to have. Uh, no, I, I yeah. totally agree. Yeah. And we and really appreciate to you your guys. time. You know what? Giving somebody like me a platform to talk about these kind of things is good. Will have Packer, you're the best. Thank Thanks you so much. This is Bloomberg. Will you introduce my firm? I will. Will you say my name? Okay, All so right. I don't have to. Actually, you can introduce. You can introduce your firm right here. <laughs> With us, she's managing director Evercore Wealth Management. That's why we See? love live. Got your firm right in there. She <laughs> is here with us. We're so delighted, Carol, because we're able to draw on this amazing event that's going on I know. upstairs. I both love of this. you, both you and I, have been able to be a part of it. Uh, Jill was participating in a panel called "The Next Phase of the Me Too Movement" here at the Bloomberg Equality Summit. So, Jill, first of all, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, so, where are we? In this whole Me Too conversation, because as Carol said a couple minutes ago, we're a year, year plus in. How would you describe where we are? Well, from my perspective, I think it's a very exciting time, especially for women. Uh, And as we start to gain more power, as more women have positions of power in business and have more wealth, change is really starting to occur. Follow the money, basically, right? Well, it's an interesting t- statistic, and you pr- may have heard it, but um, due to the fact that women get college degrees at faster rates than men, so 57% of undergraduates uh, degrees go to women, 62% of postgraduate degrees are granted to women. Wow. Yeah. I hadn't um, heard that, actually. 40% of wives now already out-earn their husbands, but as we are getting educated faster, that number will be higher. It will be above 50% by the next generation. So we're not only generating our own wealth, but we're also inheriting at an unprecedented rate from our baby boomer parents and the fact that we outlive our husbands, wives outlive husbands, on average 15 years. So that by the year 2030, women will have two-thirds of the nation's wealth. So what's that going to do to the financial industry? Well, so... Or what are they doing to plan for that? There you are. That's a great question. Uh, I work at Evercore Wealth Management, which is a firm that has 50% of their senior professionals are women. 
It's a completely gender balanced firm. And when I was interviewing with Jeff Moore, who's our CEO, and he and I looked at his statistics, I said, oh my gosh, you've got 50% uh, senior women, you've got 35% um, of the partners are women, you've got twice the industry average of portfolio managers that are women. Was this by design or was it dumb luck? And he just said, listen, I just hired the best people for the jobs. And that was such a rewarding thing to hear that yeah. I, he had me at hello and I wanted to join. You know, it's interesting too, I keep going back to this lunch I had with CEOs and like, you know, we don't have a problem if you walk into a corporate board or a company and it's 60% men and 40% women or 70% men or whatever. But if we skewed it the other way, somebody talked about an example where their management team was predominantly women and somebody was like, don't you think that's like kind of sending a bad message? There's a problem with that? Like, I do wonder when we can, because like you're talking about the amount of money that women will be making in the future, probably managing and investing, right? Their Correct. own money that they're making. Like, it sounds like you should even be skewing the numbers more favorable towards women. Well, I've made the conscious decision and commitment to focus just on predominantly on women clients. Yeah. So they're ex executives, they're entrepreneurs, they're philanthropists. And um, one of the questions in the panel today was, do you have mentors? How do you find mentors as a woman on Wall Street? Well, first of all, my, f my firm is diverse. Yeah. But second of all, these women who are my clients are outstanding. And as much as I help them fill in their investment gaps, right. they've become my mentors and friends. And because Wall Street's built on trust, yeah. as they've come to trust me to manage their money, then they've acted as sponsors for me. And Which they is even more productive, right? And then they recommend yeah. me to others, putting their reputations on the line. So fair to say that it sounds like things are going well, trending well, trending right, and even uh, historically at your firm. Can't say the same for a, a lot of the rest of Wall Street. Is there a reckoning coming? Is there some sort of flashpoint that will help the rest of Wall Street catch up? I can only speak for Evercore. What I have to say to young women is that there are plenty of firms like mine yeah. where the tide is turned and look to work for those places where it's led from the top down, where the culture is about equality and where it's about the outcome for the client. And, and in this case, many of the clients are women. Um, it's interesting, too. I think before we got going, we were talking a little bit about Me Too. Um, you know, what is your advice to women in this environment? What is your advice to men in this environment within the financial sector where we're trying to kind of find our way through this and not repeat mistakes, learn from the past year? You know, I would just turn it back to we're working together towards a new future, all of us. And some of us are looking at the future right now and saying, that's not the future I want. So it's about investing with your values, putting your money to work, voting with your wallet, investing in companies who are doing the right things for their employees, from a gender perspective, for the environment. It's about really um, leading, walking the talk. Jill Faraday Lloyd is Managing Director at Evercore Wealth Management, on site with us at the Bloomberg Equality Summit. So she is a survivor and she's 20 years old and she has lived through more than your average teen. At just 15 years old, she was sexually assaulted at a boarding school in New Hampshire. But she is strong and she's written about it. She's an advocate. Her book is I Have the Right to a High School Survivor's Story of Sexual Assault, Justice and Hope uh, on site with us here at the Bloomberg Equality Summit along with her dad. Alex Proud. He's head of international advisory services at Nuveen and vice chair of the I Have the Right to.org. So good to have you here with us. And I really feel like the more we have these conversations, the more we learn, and hopefully the better it, get, um, it gets. Alex and Chessie, thank you so much for participating in our event and, and talking with us. Um, Chessie, tell us about how important it was for you to tell your story. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having us here today and for helping to shed a light on such an important issue. Um, 
I mean, for me, finding my voice was a process. It was definitely a process. And um, going through the criminal justice system, I was supposed to be protected um, because I was a minor and I went through the system as a Jane Doe. Um, but throughout the trial and um, following that, my name was leaked to the press. It was leaked on the Internet. And I had kind of lost control of my own narrative. I had lost control of my own life again after losing control um, during the sexual assault itself. And so I wanted to regain that control, regain control over my story to, um, you know, kind of make the Internet a safer place for me again, um, because the Internet was a place where hateful things were being written about me and my family and about other survivors, too. And I wanted to be able to share my story, tell my story from my perspective, um, because it's so important to hear these stories firsthand. Mm -hmm. And Alex, help us understand how you help you, you and your wife and, and the rest of your family help Chessie, because I know I can imagine you just wanted to protect her. Um, and yet you also wanted to empower her to be able to tell this story and, and to help other people. So help us understand that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it was a process that obviously no one is prepared for to, to go through. And, and there isn't sort of a, a roadmap or a rule book that we can follow. So we, we had to learn as we went through this process. And we were never sure if we were making the right decisions. Right. But we were always trying to guide ourselves through looking after Chessie's well-being and then also making sure that this perpetrator did not do it to anyone else. Because the main reason Chessie decided to come forth and speak up was because she didn't want this young man to, to do it to anyone else. She had heard that he had done it to a number of other girls on campus. And that really sort of gave her the motivation to um, take the risk and, and enter the criminal justice system. Do you feel like, Chessie, things have gotten better? I mean, things, are definitely, things have definitely changed. Um, you know, but... For me, personally, after coming forward um, with my assault in 2014, um, it's interesting now looking back at some of the girls who either ignored me or even bullied me at school, blaming me for different things, different changes at the school, mm -hmm. and how they post on Instagram about they support women's rights, they march in the Women's March. I mean, there's such a public show of support for survivors, but until we bring that support into our private lives, it's not going to mean anything. Um, you can march with as many signs as possible, but it's until you talk to your friend, you tell them you support them, tell them you believe them, that it's going to make a difference. Did you ever confront some of those people afterwards? <laughs> no, um, I know. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I... I it's anger anger yeah. is an important part of this journey in yeah. and of itself. And I took up boxing to kind of help with that Good during high school. And um, I've definitely found different ways to use my voice, use my energy than to try to change people's minds because that's not my job. Right. My job isn't to change people's minds about, change their opinions about sexual assault. It's to, you know, tell my story, tell my truth because that's the only thing I'm really an expert on. So, Jesse, I, I want to ask you about last fall. The nation was riveted, obviously, mm -hmm. by the Kavanaugh hearings. Um, you know, hearing a survivor like yourself step forward, tell her story and face a lot of the things that you described, disbelief, bullying at, the, at an unbelievable level. How did you feel sort of watching that? And where do you think we are after that experience as a country, as a people? I think culturally there's definitely been a shift of support, but institutionally and systematically, there hasn't been much change in support of survivors. Um, there have been so many brave survivors and their families coming forward, helping to pass legislation. I mean, in New Hampshire, just a couple, I think a year ago, they tried to pass um, Marcy's Law, and it didn't, it didn't pass. Um, that would have allowed victims to have closer to equal rights to perpetrators in coming forward. Right. Um, so that was really disappointing to see that not pass in New Hampshire, where my case was tried. Um, and I mean, it's, I think it's just time for, you know, adults. And as I'm slowly becoming an adult, I mean, I'm going to try to step up as much as I can and try to use my education that I'm getting now to help make life and life easier for survivors in the future. And I do wonder about Alex, right? Our roles as adults, right? Mm -hmm. And the conversations either you're having with friends, with peers, with colleagues, how do you tell the story to hopefully educate others and, and hopefully make some improvement here? Well, I joke around now that I'm not a lot of fun at cocktail parties <laughs> because um, I, I use every opportunity yeah, when I'm um, uh, meeting people to try to raise awareness because we, we faced remarkable ignorance um, and also outright hostility and, and sort of institutional complicity um, yeah. at, at schools and in the workplace. And, you know, so, you know, Chessie is 
created this, um, our, our nonprofit, I Have the Right to. My wife is really focused on education and awareness at, in middle schools and high schools. And I'm trying to take the messaging into the corporate space and um, under the banner of how do we create a safe and supportive workplace. Um, I've just joined a new firm, Nuveen, and I joined them because their, their culture was, um, was really a, a strong one where mm-hmm. the, the words had real sort of meaning versus right. some of the other places I've, I've worked at. And because what's important for me, obviously, I'm, I'm sort of a business builder. Yeah. Um, but to do that, we need to retain and keep our best talent. And we need to have an environment where everyone feels like they can reach their full potential. Right. So, you know, I found that the message that both Chessie and I can deliver sort of really resonates also in the corporate space. And we just want to remind everybody, the name of the book is I Have the Right to a High School, Sur- a high school Survivor's Story of Sexual Assault, Justice, and Hope. Um, do pick it up. Uh, Chessie Prop, thank you so much. Thank you for having Great me. to talk with you, Carol Alex. Jason, thank you thank so you much. Very much. Really appreciate it, and good luck with everything. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason. Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We are live at the Bloomberg Equality Summit. Uh, one of the guests that we got to talk to at the summit um, up on stage, I sat down with Sly James. He's the mayor of Kansas City, just getting ready uh, to wrap up his tenure as mayor, and he's been working on a lot of programs to improve equality in his city. Listen up. We've been very uh, diligent and intentional about uh, skilling people up after the recession trying to get them into new uh, areas of work. We've been very intentional about trying to do some things in the community that would generate jobs and economic activity. Uh, We've been very intentional about uh, putting money into the community in terms of infrastructure, which would then allow businesses to come in and operate. Uh, And we've been very intentional about focusing on kids in school and in the process of doing that, drawing parents into that conversation, which has helped somewhat. This is about high school diplomas, the percentage that obtain a high school diploma or more. That, too, has been going up since the crisis. It's pretty impressive. It, has, it is impressive, still short of where we need to be. Um, and, and, again, all of those numbers take into account the performance of probably all of the school districts in whole or in part. But if you put up just the KCPS numbers, those numbers would be drastically lower. And that's what bothers me. There is an, in, an inequality in education in this city and, frankly, in this entire country. One of the things that isn't reflected here is the mobility of African-American and Latino children, uh, which really does hurt their academic performance. Another thing is the ridiculously biased uh, suspension and expulsion rate. Uh, Out of every 100 African-American males in school, uh, 65 suspensions for that. Now, some of them are saying people multiple suspensions, but 65 out of 100 is crazy. When you also look at the fact that kids in in in, uh, pre-K institutions are being suspended. How the heck do you get suspended from pre-K? I mean, seriously. To me, that's like, duh. So how do you fix, how do you, I mean, that's a lot. (laughs) Laughter aside, how do you deal with some of that? How have you been able to make a difference? Well, we focused on equity, and we focused on trying to... What does to make, that mean? Well, one of the things, we, we're in the middle of a, of a race and inequality series now. The first session that we had was starting the conversation. And by that, we had to get everybody to understand the terms that we were being used. Because if I ask people out here, what's racism? I'd probably get 100 different answers. Right. And, but before you can have a reasonable conversation, we have to agree on some basics. So we started that conversation, and in the process of starting that conversation and bringing the community into that conversation and the two subsequent ones, then we have been able to talk about that. But we also had suspension summits where we brought in educators and, and interested parties, and we're going to have another. We had it two years ago. We're going to have another one this May. Has it changed the numbers? We're, Are that's those kindergarten what we're kids at, not getting expelled anymore? That we we believe there's some oh, anecdotal. Yeah. We believe there's anecdotal evidence to indicate that it's been better. Yeah. But we're we're getting the numbers. We're going to have a follow up in May, and we're going to look at that data and have another conference at that time. Uh, we've had mobility conferences. Uh, we've worked with parents to uh, to empower parents. Uh, and get them engaged so that they can be advocates for All their the children. All the stakeholders, in other words. You got to. You, I mean, everything's connected. Everything's connected. That's why pre-K is so important. So that was Carol's conversation with Sly James. He is the mayor of Kansas City. Uh, that's a tough job. 
It's a tough job, man. He went in and he was really working on, they have a lot of violence and they have kind of lax gun laws. So you've got to trap that down. And you know what was really important? I, I thought we threw up some charts too. And he said, you know, you really have to break this down, um, black versus white, because you really do see the discrepancies and there's real dividing lines in some of these cities. Troost Avenue is, is a place that he's really trying to work. You know, if you were born on the east side, it meant one thing. If you were born on the west side, and they're really trying to break that down. But some of this is so ingrained in the history of these cities, it's not easy. But he did stress over and over again the importance of education early on, reading. Uh, he's made some big improvements on that in terms of, in terms of upping um, you know, the amount of reading that's going on, the comprehension levels, uh, big improvement, in fact. But he says education makes a huge difference right. in the lives of people. Well, that point about kindergarten was really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we certainly have learned about it, you know, we just caught up with the mayor of Charlotte uh, last week. You know, these yeah. local leaders, they do have a huge amount of impact. If they can get it right, yeah. you know, they can really move the needle on things. I mean, I remember talking to Mitch Landrew, the then Over mayor New of New Orleans, yeah. you know, back in the day, he said, you know, the thing about a mayor being a mayor is it's not like being in Washington where you're sort of separated from your constituency. You're walking to the office every day and you're seeing the problems. And listen, they're telling you about them. Right. They're not bashful. And Mayor James talked about that a lot. He said, you know, one of the big things, too, is you've got to get out there. You've yeah. got to be talking to the people. You can't be hiding in your office. You've got to see what's going on and really understand the problems firsthand if you want to make some kind of significant difference. So uh, it takes... You know, equality. This is the summit. It's at all levels, from the CEO on down yeah. or from individuals. I just think of uh, Chessie Prost, who we just had on. Um, you know, she's making a difference. She's telling her story. Right. And that's helping others. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I started the day speaking with John Winkleried. He's the co-CEO of TPG, based out in San Francisco. He was here in New York, and I started off the conversation asking, Carol, mm-hmm. about what happened and what the fallout was from the firing of TPG Growth and TPG Rise founder Bill McGlashan. Well, I think um, a couple of weeks ago when this news first broke, it was a, as you might imagine, it was pretty shocking. I mean, this is something that we had no knowledge of or had no idea this was all happening. And um, so anytime something like this happens, you know, you sort of it takes your breath away for a minute. Um, but we, um, you know, we reacted, as you described. I mean, we tried to react, you know, pretty uh, in a pretty focused way. And um, one of the things that I think we felt was really important to do was to make sure that we were communicating. And so we went out to all of our stakeholders. And by the way, that's both both externally in terms of our investors, our LPs, and also internally, um, because this is obviously a very important thing internally as well with all our people. But our investors, I would say overall, number one, are very supportive. um, And um, they obviously understood the context that, um, unfortunately, Bill was engaged in this scheme uh, um, on a personal basis. Um, And so our investors, number one, were very supportive. Our investors understand what we're trying to accomplish as a firm with respect to the franchise that Bill was part of, which is our growth equity franchise, and also importantly, our impact franchise, which obviously has a lot to do with why we're here today. Um, and, um, and, but naturally, they have a lot of questions. They have a lot of questions. Um, and, um, and so what we've committed to our investors is that we're, uh, we, we've undertaken an investigation internally to make sure that none of the things that Bill was engaged in were in any way, shape, or form bleeding into the business. Um, we owe that to our investors, and so we're working on that. Um, we're going to go back to them and give them a readout when we're done with that and when we finish with all of our work. Uh, and, um, uh, and importantly also, I think our investors understand that, you know, our growth and our rise impact franchise, you know, we're talking about 100 people, 100 plus people. Um, we have a deep, broad team. Um, we have um, our, our impact fund is now made close to 30 investments over about a billion one of capital. Um, And so when you actually look at the companies we've invested in and the work these companies are doing, I think they all realize that there is a bigger, there's something bigger here than just one individual. So they're very constructive. You referenced giving, you know, us allowing them to take their money back. What we did, what we, we were in process, we were beginning to raise the second fund. So we had some, we had done a first close 
And we went back to our investors and said, of course, you'll have an opportunity to reevaluate. And so um, everybody is comfortable with where we are right now. We'll have a readout ultimately of the of 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 uh, our internal work. And, you know, then we'll go forward from there. So, Carol, later on in the conversation with John Winkle-Reed at TPG, he's the co-CEO over there. He worked at Goldman Sachs before, so he has an mm-hmm. interesting lens uh, for this. We talked about the fact that private equity has a distinct lack of diversity. I think it's fair to say, I don't think anyone in this room would disagree, this is not something private equity has been good at. It has been... <laughs> Really? White, it's been male, it's been bros. So, bros? Bros. Um, So why, like, first of all, I mean, briefly, why? And and second, do you have a legitimate shot at changing that narrative quickly? Well, um, first of all, why is because um, I think, well, first of all, it's important to me. Um, I think that when you, when you are part of an organization, and I learned this a little bit in my past organization at Goldman Sachs, I mean, when you're part of an organization that is white, bro, homogeneous, you know, and then you're, then you have a set of experiences where you kind of get out of that, that kind of, that, that atmosphere, you realize the difference. You realize the richness of being in a much more heterogeneous environment. You realize the richness of having a bunch of different type of people sitting around. Um, some, some, of it's, some of it's subtle, but some of it's not that subtle, okay, in terms of um, the idea flow, um, who you connect with externally, um, you know, and again, going back to kind of what you stand for. So I, I, I feel like it makes you a much better much richer, much more interesting organization, and your ability in our in our world, where you're trying to actually invest in companies, you're trying to you're trying to relate to and connect to CEOs, or you're trying to relate to that are running other companies. You're trying to relate to companies that are prosecuting businesses where they're dealing in a diverse world. Mm-hmm. I think having an understanding of for that, having having a a connection in some way, shape, or form, because your organization is trying to do some of the same things. To me, that's a very important thing. So I think that, uh, so just kind of level setting, I think it's very important in that respect. That is a piece of my conversation with John Winkle-Reed, co-CEO of TPG. You can get the whole thing uh, on Bloomberg.com. He was pretty frank. I think so, right? That whole college admission scandal, right? And to have to, you know, that just came out, what, a couple of weeks ago, is it, it now? Did. And to hear what he had to, you know, what this was somebody who was an important member of their firm, and they dealt with it very quickly. And you and I have talked about this, that they got a, got out ahead of it as fast as they did, um, and reached out to their investors, dealt with their internal controls in, at their firm. Uh, it's really impressive. It'll be interesting to see what this investigation turns up and what that readout to their investors says. And meanwhile, uh, Bill McGlash and uh, the partner implicated uh, in this is starting to lay out his defense. Another story in the Bloomberg uh, talking about how he is denying using uh, this side door. There's a lot of evidence that's been released and wiretaps and others, uh, transcripts of conversations. So we'll see. Uh, we're told that he is set to be arraigned uh, later this week in Boston. But I just think it's an important story. Here we are at the Bloomberg Equality Summit, right? We're talking about the importance of inclusion, diversity, um, you know, on all different levels, whether it's race, whether it's gender, whether it's economic. Right. And, you know, here you have that college admission scandal, scandal reminding everybody that sometimes <laughs> the wealthy have an edge on things like this and kind of right in our face. It, it was upsetting, to say the least. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.